Welcome to Strong Meat for Strong Believers. I'm Pastor Doug Johnson. I want to invite you to join me as we look at the issues facing us today and what God's Word says about them. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 says, Milk is for babies, but strong meat is for grown-ups who can discern the difference between good and evil. At the end of the broadcast, I'll tell you how you can get a copy of this message for yourself. And now, grab your Bible and get ready for another helping of Strong Meat for Strong Believers. We have discovered already the seven seal judgments, and we have gone through the seven trumpet judgments. And in Revelation 16, we come to the last set of seven judgments, and they are known as the vile or the bowl judgments. The word vile here uh, in the King James is translated to bowl. So some call them the bowl judgments, some call them the vile judgments, but it's the same thing. And so now it's time for the seven vile or bowl judgments. And as you read this chapter, you may notice that some of these judgments are similar to the plagues that God poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. Uh, last time we read about the grapes of man's wickedness, how that God gathered them and put them in the wine press, and now God gets ready to pour it right back out on them. He is going to repay mankind for the wickedness that they had done. And that's what we're going to read about in these seven last judgments. You may have heard the phrase that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Some people call it karma. Uh, you know, whatever you do in this life, you'll reap in the next. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in reincarnation. Other people say, what goes around comes around. That's basically what we're about to read here in chapter 16. God has been watching the wickedness of mankind, and he has gathered their grapes, put them in his wine press, and he is getting ready to pour it right back out on them. What they have done, they are getting ready to reap what they have sowed. And that's what we're going to read here in chapter 16. Though there are similarities between the bowl judgments and some of the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9, there are differences as well. In fact, you will notice the vile judgments are more intense and more extensive. Thus, we see these as a distinct series of judgments that follow the trumpet judgments. Now, each bowl is full of the wrath of God, and as it is poured out, it causes great pain and agony on the wicked. You may remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, what was the cup that he was referring to here? Well, it was the cup of God's wrath. It was filled with the wine of God's judgment for a sinful world. And the cup of wrath was ours to drink. We were supposed to drink that cup. But God, in his infinite love toward us, wasn't willing to hand us over to the coming judgment. And so, in an unimaginable act of love and obedience, Jesus chose to drink the cup of wrath in our place and to suffer our punishment and to die our death. That's what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. And so today, the choice is ours. Jesus can drink the cup for us, or we can choose to drink it ourselves. It's the same choice today. Those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we accept his sacrifice for our sin, and God accepts his sacrifice for our sin, and we are declared righteous because of Jesus and what he did for us. Anybody glad you're saved tonight? Hallelujah. So the cup that he was praying 
to pass was the cup of wrath. Well, in Revelation chapter 16, these are all people that have refused to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They have rejected Jesus. So what we're going to read about now, they have chosen to drink the cup of God's wrath themselves, and it's going to be poured out on them seven times. Let's read now with Revelation 16, beginning with verse 1. And I, John, heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. All right, so the first vial is poured out. And foul, festering, possibly malignant sores fell on those who took the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now some Bible scholars think that this is a plague of ulcers that just pop out all over their bodies. Now I want you to notice something as we go through this chapter. The brief descriptions of these last seven judgments may suggest that they occur in rapid succession upon a world that is already badly battered and bloodied. So they don't waste a whole lot of time in between the vials. It's like they pour them one after another, or at least it seems that way as you're reading this. Look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So the second bowl is poured out, and the sea turns into blood like that of a dead person. Now that's interesting to me. That John would say that because we've had other judgments come already when one-third of the waters turned to blood and they didn't use that phraseology. So this is the only time that John says this particular plague that the seas become blood as a dead man. So I began to research that. What is the difference between water turning to blood and water turning into the blood that looked like a dead person? Well, here's what I found. Blood is not just a red fluid. It is a mixture of a lot of stuff, like a clear plasma fluid and solids like red blood cells, among other things. And when a person dies, when the heart stops beating, almost immediately the blood becomes more acidic as carbon dioxide builds up in it. This causes cells to split open, and the heavy red blood cells move down to the parts of the body that are closest to the ground. In other words, gravity pulls those heavy parts down to the ground, which is one of the things that when a medical examiner is trying to find the cause of death or, or the time of death, they will look at a dead body and they will look them over and see where the blood is, has been collecting, where gravity is pulling. And depending on how much is dispersed and how much is there, it can help them determine the time of death. All right, So that leaves a dark red gunk at the lowest point and a light-colored fluid or the plasma on top, above that. So what John is seeing here may mean that the sea looks dark on the bottom and it's light colored like plasma on the top. I don't know if that's what he's talking about, but it's interesting to me that he says that the sea turns to blood as of a dead person. So that's what I found. Look at verse 4. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say... Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, 
Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. When the third bowl is poured out, the rivers turn to blood. Now I want you to notice that the angel and even the altar speaks. And they both say, you are righteous for dealing with them this way. They deserve to drink blood because they shed the blood of saints and prophets. Now if you remember back to the fifth seal judgment, when the fifth seal was opened, the Bible tells us that the martyrs, those who had died for their faith, were crying out for justice. And they said, how long, O Lord, will you wait until you avenge our blood? And, and the Lord told them, hold on just for a little more time and vengeance will be taken care of. Well, here in Revelation 16, this is the fulfillment of what the fifth seal talked about because the angel is telling God, you are just and you are righteous for the way you're dealing with these people. Now God is giving his vengeance out on those who killed those Christians. You see, hatred against Christians is increasing even now. More people are dying for Christ today than ever before. I mean, we as American Christians, we're blessed. We've got freedom in this country. But, you know, if you'll notice, a lot of our rights are starting to be attacked. And our faith is being attacked. And people are attacking us personally and trying to discredit us. Because if they cannot deny the truth of what we say, they'll try to do personal attacks against us and try to uh, denounce us or degrade us to where people won't listen to anything we say. That's a tactic of the devil. You see, we forgive because God has promised that he will avenge us and he will repay all of those who come against us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. My friends, the people who are coming against you, they will stand in judgment before God for what they have done to you. I promise you this, you're not turning them loose, you're turning them over to God. So forgive them and go on with your life and let God bring justice to them. And he will do it. You know, today is the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And I want you to think of the 63 million babies that have been aborted over the years. Think of their innocent blood that is crying out for justice today. God hears every one of them. Imagine the innocent people that have been murdered by criminals. Their blood is crying out for vengeance today. Imagine the Christians that have been martyred for their faith. Their blood is crying out for vengeance. And God will have his vengeance upon the wicked. And he will bring justice to his people. Can I have an amen tonight? God keeps good records. That's why we forgive and let God take care of it. Look at verse 8 now. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. So the fourth vial is poured out, and the sun is affected and allowed to scorch people. Now, the side effects of this scorching heat would drastically affect the climate, possibly including excessive evaporation and melting of the great ice areas of the world. They're talking about global warming right now. Honey, right here, this judgment, this fourth bowl, that's global warming right there. They don't know what they're talking about right now. Revelation 16, 8 and 9, that's global warming right there. When that happens, it's going to happen. It's not happening yet. Maybe to a very small degree, but my friend, when it comes, God will have the control over it. 
Now you may remember when the sixth seal was opened, the sun went dark. How many remember that? Remember that? And then during the trumpet judgments, the power of the sun was diminished by one-third. How many remember that? Okay. So, so far the sun has been affected through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, and here it is in the bowl judgments. Now the sun is increased in its power so much that it scorches everyone. Now that's amazing to me that God is, affects the sun through all three seven sections of judgments. Now notice the people refuse to repent and they continue to curse God and to blaspheme him. You know, this, this boggles my mind how that people can get to that place. But I'm telling you, we're starting to see people become that way. People become so hard-hearted. They don't want to hear anything about God. They become so hard they begin to curse God and, and they don't want to hear anything. They don't want you to invite them to church. Uh, we even see a few examples of this in the Bible. King Saul, near the end of his life, became hard-hearted. You know, God told King Saul that he had rejected him and chosen David to be king. Now, you would think that Saul, hearing God had taken the kingdom away from him, that would cause him to repent, but it didn't. King Saul did not repent. He refused to, to humble himself. You see, Saul had reached the same point as the people will be in the tribulation period, being judged for their sin, yet refusing to repent. And my friends, the people of the tribulation period will be so hard-hearted that nothing, absolutely nothing, will change their mind. They refuse to come to God. Now, so far, the bowls have been poured out on the land, the sea, the rivers, and the sun. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, if you look at that, the land, the sea, the rivers, and the sun, those are all gifts from God to us and that have been taken for granted. And God begins to turn those gifts and take those gifts away from them or use them against the mankind as judgments. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Pastor Doug, I hear what you're saying. I understand these people being judged for the wickedness they've done. But what about people who have never heard about Jesus? What about people who have never heard the gospel? Will they be judged too? Because that doesn't seem fair to me. And you would have a legitimate argument there. But let me share something with you from Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 12. Proverbs 24, 12 says this. If thou sayest, behold, we knew it not. Does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps thy soul, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? In other words, God knows what people know and what they don't know, and he will deal with them accordingly. My friend, that's the great thing about God. God is a merciful and he is a just God. If there is somebody who has not heard the gospel, if there's someone who's never heard about Jesus, God will deal with them according to their works just as he will deal with you and I according to our works. He is a just and a merciful God. But I want to remind you of Revelation 16, the point we're at today in our study. These judgments come after 
the 144,000 sealed preachers who've been preaching the gospel, these judgments come after the two mighty witnesses who preach for three and a half years. These judgments come after the angel proclaims the everlasting gospel through the air. Everyone in chapter, by chapter 16 has had the opportunity to choose Jesus or the Antichrist. So everyone that is being judged in Revelation 16 has no excuse. They had the opportunity to choose, and they took the mark of the beast. They worshiped his image. They are wholeheartedly following the Antichrist, and God has given them exactly what they deserve. Now, these are the final judgments before Jesus returns to earth. And what will happen then? Oh, my. I can't wait to find out, but that's... We won't get there tonight. We'll get that next time. Look at verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And repented not of their deeds. So the fifth bowl is poured out in darkness upon the Antichrist kingdom and the pain from the sores of the first judgment caused them to gnaw their tongues. Can you imagine being in so much pain you chew your tongue off? They are in complete darkness. They cannot see anything. These ulcers are on their body. They're being scorched by the sun. But now the darkness comes and the sun goes out. You see, what's happening is they're getting a taste of hell on earth. That's what's happening. Because the final place for the devil, the antichrist, the false prophet, and those that follow him, and Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, the final place for them is outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, outer darkness is different from hell. Hell is here on earth. And as we get into the white, great white throne judgment, you'll find out, it tells in Revelation, that hell gives up the dead in it. So hell is not the final eternal place for the wicked. That is the holding place. People who die now, who are lost, they go to hell. It's a temporary holding spot. It's not purgatory. That's where they are until the great white throne judgment happens. And then hell gives up all the dead that's in them. And then those who stand before the great white throne judgment will be judged for their sins. And then they'll be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they will be there forever and ever and ever. My friends, you don't want to go there. Hear me tonight. You don't want to go there. You don't want your lost loved ones to go there. You need to pray and seek the Lord and do everything you can to tell your loved ones, please get saved before it's too late. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3. This gives us a clue about why these people won't repent. Proverbs 19, 3. The foolishness of man's ways ruin his life. And his heart rages against the Lord. What Solomon is saying here is that people blame God for what they do to themselves. That's what people do. People's own ways, their own foolishness, ruin their life. 
And then their heart rages against God as if it's God's fault they ended up the way they were. No, honey, let me tell you, when you stand before God, God will simply open the book of life. If your name is written there, it's because you made the choice to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life and you're saved. Hallelujah. But if your name is not in the book of life... The Bible says, then there are other books over here that are open. And those books will be open and all your life's deeds are written there. And everything you did in your life, every wicked thing, every ungodly thought that crossed your mind, every mistake, everything you did will be read before everyone publicly. And then God, being the just judge he is, will simply pass judgment on you according to your own works. You can't blame the devil. You can't blame God. You will send yourself to outer darkness. It won't be God's fault. And yet, what do we see here in Revelation 16? They're cursing God. They're blaspheming God. They're blaming God. But they're the ones who took the mark of the beast. They're the ones who did not accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. When you mess up, confess it to God. Confess your sins to God. Don't blame God. Don't blame the devil. Take responsibility. Lord, I sinned. Forgive me for that. Lord, I lost my temper. Forgive me for that. Lord, I said something I shouldn't have said. God, forgive me. When you sin, confess it. Please, confess it. Don't blame God. It ain't God's fault for the things we do. Hallelujah. Oh, this is a good preaching. Look at verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now imagine that. The great river Euphrates, the entire river, dries up. You know, it's a miracle when God opened the Red Sea. That's a miracle. And he did it again at the Jordan River. When they crossed the Jordan River to go in the promised land, he dried it up again. And he did it for Elisha. When Elisha took Elijah's mantle and struck it and God dried up the river and it crossed it. But this, this here, this is, we're not talking about just a path. We're not even talking about a wide path. We're talking about the entire river. It's gone. The whole thing dries up. And the reason why is the armies of the nations of the east will be aided in their march toward Armageddon by the supernatural drying up of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River is the natural border or boundary between the east and the west. It stretches for 1,600 miles. God is going to dry up 1,600 miles of river like that. My friend, our God can do anything. I said our God can do anything. What miracle do you need tonight? Our God can supply it and do even greater than what you've asked for. Hallelujah. If you look at a map in order to cross from Asia to Israel, you have to cross the Euphrates River. Now in chapter 9, we read about the 200 million troops that are going to be coming. And I believe that's the ones that are going to be crossing the Euphrates River. Now there's a little interesting note I want to share with you. In 1990... Turkey completed the 27 billion cubic meter capacity Ataturk Dam on the Euphrates River. And when they completed that, they turned that thing on and it reduced the mighty waterway to a trickle. They shut the Euphrates River off 
with that Ataturk Dam, and it's still standing today. So they've actually done it once already. This may be how God does it again, or God may do it some supernaturally miraculous way because he can do it. Don't you doubt it one bit. But I want to tell you, friends, we, things are happening and in place now that were not in place a few years ago, a few decades ago. And my friend, the things in Revelation can happen in our lifetime. We are the first generation to actually be able to say that with certainty. The things we've been studying can actually happen in our lifetime. Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready? Oh, if you're not ready, don't leave this building tonight without committing your heart and life to him. Look at verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief, Jesus said, Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And notice those evil spirits, what they look like. They look like frogs. Isn't that interesting? I, I thought it was interesting because it reminded me of the magicians of Egypt. When Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. And one of the plagues was a plague of frogs. And the Bible tells us that the magicians of Egypt also brought up frogs with their witchcraft. You know, Satan always tries to get the upper hand on God, but he fails every time. Because I always laugh when I read that story because... It was bad enough when God brought the frogs, but then when the magicians, when they brought their frogs, now there was twice as many frogs, and it was twice as bad for Pharaoh. (laughs) You see how stupid the devil is? The devil tries to outdo God, and all he does is just add on to the judgment that God had. But here's the thing. I think God just sits back and laughs at the devil. I really do. He just sits back and laughs at the devil because the devil tries his best to try to copy what God does, and even when he succeeds at copying it, He just magnifies the judgment. Hallelujah. Now, it's interesting to me, not only that they were able to do that, but it is possible that they weren't actually frogs. They could have been demons. Could have been. Because, again, they used witchcraft to conjure them up. Moses and Aaron used the power of God, but these magicians did use witchcraft and sorcery to conjure them up. And we see here in Revelation 16 that there are evil spirits who look like frogs, and they come out of the mouth of the dragon, which is Satan, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So that's, that's very interesting to me. I thought I'd just share that with you because, you know, the devil, think, the devil does have power, but it ain't nothing compared to God's power. Now, the armies gather for the battle of Armageddon. Many battles have been fought in the Jezreel Valley, which is also known as the Valley of Armageddon. Napoleon Bonaparte fought a battle in that, va- in that valley. In fact, he declared it as the most natural battleground of the whole earth, end quote. The way that valley is situated and the way it sits. There were four battles in the Bible that have already been fought in Megiddo. The first one was Deborah and Barak versus Sisera in Judges chapter 5. 
The second one was King Saul versus the Philistines when Saul died in 1 Samuel 31. The third one was Gideon defeating the Midianites in Judges chapter 6 verse 33. And then also Josiah versus Pharaoh Necho, which is when Josiah died. That is in 2 Kings chapter 23. Four battles in the Bible have already been fought in the valley of Megiddo. And by the way, King Ahaziah also died there. You can read that in 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 27. So there have been several battles already fought there. But this battle in Revelation 16, oh, this is going to be a battle unlike any other. This battle is against Jesus himself and his army, which takes place in chapter 19, the battle of Armageddon. And you and I will see that with our own eyes. My friend, I want to remind you, we're on the victory side. Hallelujah. We won't be fighting the battle. Jesus will fight the battle for us. That's why no matter what the devil's coming against you with, the battle is not yours. It is God's, and he can win every battle. Do you believe that tonight? Give God a shout of praise. Let me know you're out there. Amen. Now notice also, as we just read, in verse 15, Jesus speaks to John. As John is seeing all these judgments unveil, Jesus speaks, and he warns those who are not watching and not ready for his return, lest they be found naked. Now, that's interesting that Jesus would give that warning. Again, this is the mercy of God we're seeing here, a warning from Jesus himself telling everyone who would read this book or hear this prophecy of John to get ready. Watch for his return. Don't be found naked. Don't be found lacking. And notice it says that God is the one who's bringing these armies together, and he's going to deal with them just like he said he would in Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. This is a prophecy in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it to you from Joel chapter 3. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war and wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up and beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. There calls thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. So this is God issuing a challenge to all of his enemies to come and do their worst. This signifies that God is preparing war against them. And they are called upon to prepare war against him. Now, Bible scholars say that this is a description of the campaign of Armageddon that we're reading about in Revelation 16. You know, in our Western judicial system here in America, a person convicted of a crime by a court of law is entitled to appeal against the decision and be granted a retrial. This mechanism is built into the system because of the fallible nature of our earthly judges. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that a court may have made an error. However, God is the infallible judge. And there will be no appeals when God sends judgment. If you want to have mercy, you need to ask for it now before judgment day comes. Because when God brings judgment, there is no appeal. There is no retrial. When he sends judgment, he does it because he knows that is what needs to happen. He has already judged the hearts and the intents of the people on the earth. 
Because remember, God sees the heart. He knows everything about a person. All we can see is the outside. Let's finish up chapter 16. Look at verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, and for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So the final bowl, the final judgment comes and brings an earthquake bigger than any before it. This earthquake is not just on one geographic location. It affects the entire world. Did you notice that? First of all, it splits Jerusalem into three parts. And then it says all the cities of the nations fell. That's all worldwide. And then it says the mountains were leveled down. That's worldwide. And then it says the islands disappeared. They probably just go underground, under the water. Everything is leveled completely by this huge earthquake. The topography of the earth will be drastically changed. And unbelieving survivors of the hailstorm will curse God instead of turning to him in repentance. Brothers and sisters... My friend, it's going to be a terrible, terrible thing. Now, it says that every hailstone was about the weight of a talent. I looked that up, and depending on uh, what version of the talent that you look for, that you look at, uh, what I found was a hailstone was about 135 pounds. Now, you may find a different one out there, and that's, but still, that's a big hailstone. That's, and that you, can, you can imagine it falling to the sky. That's like meteors. Little meteors falling from the ground, from the from heaven, and that hits somebody, it's going to kill them. If it hits them, if it hits their house, it's going to do some damage. If it hits their car, it's going to do some damage. And the people still will not repent. And then God remembers Babylon, and He turns His attention and wrath toward Babylon, which leads us to Revelation chapter seventeen. So let's go there now. As we start Revelation 17, let me ask you a question, something to think about. When you hear the word religion, what comes to mind? Religion. Is it something positive or is it something negative? It's interesting that the word religion means ceremonial observance. And it is only used five times in the Bible. And only one time is it used in a good way. <laughs> And that's found in James chapter 1, verse 27, when it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That is the only positive reference in the Bible of religion. All the other ones are negative. So my point is this. There is plenty of religion in the world, but what does God think about it? Because there's a lot of false religions in the world. And we're going to find out what God thinks about it here in Revelation chapter 17. So let's begin reading with verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, said unto me, 
Come here, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So in this text, Babylon is represented as a whore whose unfaithfulness affects many people and nations. That is the waters that she sits on in verse 15. We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 15. Now Babylon is about to be given a specific punishment that goes from chapter 17 all the way through chapter 18. We're just going to cover chapter 17 tonight in this study. But now in the Old Testament... Prostitution and adultery often refers to people cheating on God. Spiritual adultery is what it often refers to because marriage is used to symbolize Jesus and his bride. And who is his bride? We are. The church, the Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, uh, the children of God, the saints, we are his bride. You remember the story of Hosea in the book of Hosea? God told Hosea the prophet to go and marry a prostitute because he was going to be a living, illustrated sermon to the people of Israel. He was going to illustrate in his daily life the love of God for them. Even though they keep cheating on him, keep committing adultery on him, he still loves them. And so Hosea marries a prostitute named Gomer. He gives her his name. He gives her a home. They bear children together. They have a wonderful life together. And yet, she would not stop her cheating ways. She ends up going back to her life of prostitution. And he ends up trying to find her. He even sends the kids out to go and find her. They can't find her. Finally, when he finds her, she is on the auction block of human slavery getting ready to be auctioned off as a slave to someone, and he goes and spends every last dime he's got to rescue his wife and bring her back home. And that is exactly how God's love chases after us, even though we continue to cheat on him, we continue to worship money, or we worship pleasure, or we worship things instead of God. That's adultery. That's spiritual adultery. And there are times when we worship other things for their benefit. That's getting paid. Well, that's prostitution. Because a prostitute will pretend to love you if you get paid, if you pay her. So prostitution and adultery in the Bible often refers to spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution, cheating on God. And so in Revelation 17, Babylon is reflected as a whore or a prostitute. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So the mother of prostitutes and abominations is Babylon. Now notice, she rides on top of the Antichrist. That's the beast that she's sitting on. She's riding on top of Antichrist like he's under her control. 
Now that's very interesting. Keep that, in, keep that thought in your mind. Like the Antichrist is under her control because we've been reading all this time how the Antichrist is in control of everybody. I mean, he's got this mark of the beast. He's, got, he's been able to control buying and selling and everything. But, this, but Babylon is sitting on top of the beast. Now, the Bible is like a tale of two cities. Those two cities being Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon is mentioned 287 times in the Bible. Jerusalem is mentioned about 800 times. <laughs> that is the city that God has placed his name there. Now, if you follow what the Bible says about these two cities, you'll understand the story of the Bible. Babylon represents the world's system of godless religion and the economic, political power of the world. Now, it is true that Babylon is a place in modern-day Iraq, and Babylon is actually the birthplace of many false religions. If you'll go back to Genesis chapter 11, you can read the story in your own personal devotion time. But Genesis chapter 11 tells a story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is where mankind tried to build their way to heaven. Tried to work their way to heaven. They built this tower and their goal was to build this tower to reach heaven. And, of course, God intervened, and he confused their language. And so they called the place the Tower of Babel because it means confusion. Now, Babel later becomes Babylon. And the Bible tells us that Babel was founded by Nimrod. Nimrod founded Babel. That was one of his cities. Now, I found something interesting in researching this. I don't know if it's true or not, so I'm just going to give this little disclaimer. I don't know if this is true, but I'm just going to give it out there. Some say that many false religions can be traced back to Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, and her son, Tamaz. Their names have been changed over the years, depending on the religion. Some have called them Venus and Cupid. Others have called them Aphrodite and Eros. Some have called them Isis and Oris. Others have called them Ashtoreth and Baal. Now, let me say this. I have not found any Semiramis in the Bible that was Nimrod's wife. So that could be legend, it could be theory out there, but there are a lot of people who think that's the reason why a lot of false religions go back to Babylon. Well, however, whatever you, however you feel about that, according to what the Bible says here, what the angel tells John, that Babylon is the mother of prostitutes. Again, prostitution is false religion. So the angel tells John plainly in verse 5 that Babylon is the mother of harlots, the mother of prostitutes. In other words, Babylon is where false religions came from, not necessarily the place in Iraq, but Babylon here in Revelation represents all the false religions of the world, okay? And religion often looks pretty. Because here she's robed in scarlet and, and purple and you know she's decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls. She looks good. She looks pretty. That's what religion does. Religion often looks pretty, but it's full of some nasty stuff. Just like the cup that she's drinking of is full of nasty stuff. That's what religion will get you. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't die to give you religion. Jesus died so you could have a relationship with God Almighty. He came to restore the relationship between God and man that our sin caused a separation there. I'll tell you something else about religion. Religion has caused many wars over the years and have killed many people. Many people have died in the name of religion. I mentioned to you earlier how that more Christians are being killed now than ever before. Over the last 2,000 years, 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. 
Think about that. And the majority of them have been killed in the last hundred years. My friend, persecution of Christianity is stronger now than it ever has been. People hate Christians. They hate Jesus. And so Babylon here in Revelation 17 represents the false religions of the world. And that's why she is sitting on the Antichrist. And we're going to go a little deeper with that in just a minute. But notice also when John sees her, he is astonished by what he sees. Look at verse 7 now. And the angel said to me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the, of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, there are many theories about the woman and the beast and the seven hills and all those things. And, and I'm not going to go into that. You, if you want to look into that a little bit more for your homework, you go right ahead. There's a lot of theories out there. But I want to focus on the big picture, what we just read right here. The big picture is this. The woman is sitting on the Antichrist. And verse 9, it says that, she, that these seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, this may give us a clue about where Antichrist's kingdom is going to be and possibly where the Antichrist will come from. The seven hills she sits on could refer to Rome because the city of Rome was known as a city that sat on seven hills. This could reference a rebuilt Roman Empire, possibly a united Europe, also, when you think about that area, the Vatican is also in Rome. And the Vatican is the most powerful hub of religion in the world. Now, I'm not saying that the Pope is the Antichrist. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to go by the clues here and try to see where this, situ where this uh, ge geographic location may be. Now, in this chapter, Babylon represents the false religious system that will center in Rome during the tribulation. In chapter 18, it represents more of the political commercial aspect of the revived Roman Empire headed by the Antichrist. So Babylon is a place in Iraq, but it's also um, a symbol here, a symbol of a system, just like Wall Street. Wall Street is an actual street in New York City, but also when you say Wall Street, it represents the economic system of America. So Babylon, when you're looking at Babylon in Revelation 17, it is a place in Iraq, but specifically it represents the world system of the day and the time that they're going to be living in the tribulation period. Now think about this for a minute. When the rapture takes place, all the born-again Christians are going to be taken out of the world. And that leaves all the hypocrites from all the religions of the world. And all the false religions of the world are going to be there. And that could easily lead to a one world religion, which is exactly what's going to happen under the Antichrist rule. I mean, they're already out there yelling, coexist, coexist right now. They want us to come together now and all the religions come together, but it ain't going to happen right now. Why? Because... Islam believes Muhammad is greater than Jesus. Christianity believes Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews have rejected Jesus. They're still looking at the Messiah. Those religions are not going to coexist. 
It's not going to happen until Christianity is taken out of here. When you remove Christianity, all the other false religions of the world have these things in common. Christianity doesn't have anything in common with anybody. Why? Because we're set apart. Because our God became the sacrifice for the people. All the other religions of the world, their gods demand the people to sacrifice to them. Christianity, our God, is the sacrifice for us. Our God came to save us. The other false religions, their God demands sacrifice to them. My friends, Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. And I'm glad for that, aren't you? Thank you, Jesus. Look at verse 10. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So this angel is talking, explaining this to John, what he's seeing. And he tells him about this ten-nation federation that will form and will be headed by the Antichrist. Now we talked about this in chapter 13. This is going into a little more detail about it. Uh, Daniel also saw this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. Listen to what he says. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And so Daniel sees the same vision that John did, but just from a different aspect. Now the final form of the Roman world power will be a confederation of ten nations who will arise simultaneously in the tribulation period. Their one purpose is to give their power to the Antichrist. And we talked about this in the last study. If you missed that, I'll recap a little bit for you. The Antichrist is going to institute a one-world monetary system in which every man, woman, and child must receive a mark on their forehead or in the palm of the right hand in order to buy groceries, to buy gasoline, to buy school lunch, whatever you need to buy, you have to have the mark of the beast to do that. You know, a lot of people today are afraid of the number 666. I know the Bible tells us that uh, that is the number of the Antichrist. I know people, and I've seen people, that if they're buying something at the store and the total equals 666, they'll grab a pack of gum or something and put it back on there, so then they'll pay for that just so the final total of their bill won't be 666. Let me tell you something. That's not the mark of the beast, okay? You ain't got nothing to worry about. Go ahead and buy your groceries. If your electric bill comes out to 666, Go ahead and pay it. It's $6.66. Somebody made a mistake, but it ain't you. Hallelujah. God's blessing you with a low electric bill. Hallelujah. Don't you dare call them and say, put another penny on there, please. Listen, listen. That's ignorance. Please. Please. Don't do that. This is not the mark of the beast. Okay? 666 is the number of his name. But if you look again, it tells us. Let me find it for you real quickly. Let's go back to Revelation 13. Verses 17 and 18, it says that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, there are three signifying 
identifiers right there of the Antichrist. His number is one of them. But there's two more. There is the mark. And if you look up the word mark there in, in, the, uh, in the Greek, that word mark means tattoo. Okay? So we don't know what the mark will be. We don't know if the mark will be 666 or if it will be something else. We don't know. It says, let's say he that had the mark or, or means there's another option, or the name of the beast or another option, the number of his name. So in some parts of the world, maybe in America, since everybody seems to be afraid of the number 666, maybe over here in America, he'll say, listen, I got this special tattoo. It's stylish. It's nice. It's neat. If you will have it put on you, on your forehead and on the palm of your hand, and listen, you can buy, sell, whatever you want to. Last week I wrote a little commercial to kind of, kind of help set, use some selling points that they might use. Listen, and, and it, it, won't, it may not even say 666 on it, and people will go for it. Why? Because they're looking for a number, but it's the mark. And we don't know what the mark will be. We also don't know who it is, so we don't know his name. His name is also one of the identifiers. There's three of them. There's his number, there's his name, and there is the mark. Three of them. But if you take any of those, my friends, you're dooming your soul to hell. So again, we got to be wise. And he's going to have complete control over the monetary system. Well, Pastor Doug, I don't believe that. Let me tell you something. How many of you have a smartphone? Let me see your hands. How many have a smartphone? Corey always tells me, my son, he always tells me, Dad, you got to be smarter than what you're working with. Some of these smartphones are smarter than me. Do you realize right now that this phone, this phone can tell me exactly where I'm at right now. It can give me the address of this church I'm standing in and even show me from Google Earth, a satellite in outer space can actually show me a picture of this church with a little dot on it saying, I am here. Now, if you and I have access to that kind of technology in the palm of our hand, do you really think the government knows where you are and what you're doing at all times? Oh, yes. My friend, that's why I said earlier, we are the first generation to say we have everything in place technologically to see revelation be fulfilled in our lifetime. No one else can, can say that, but we can. My friend, Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready to go? Hallelujah. Now again, like I told you last time, don't be afraid of new technology. It's all going to come to pass the way God said it is. If, in fact, when new technology comes out, just look up. That's another sign. Jesus is coming back. Amen. And here's the thing. If you believe that tolerance is the way to end religious indifference, you're believing the lies of the devil. The anti-Christian sentiment of the world is not going to get better. In fact, the Bible tells us they will continue to fight against Christianity and morality until the church is raptured out of here and a one-world religion is instituted. And Babylon represents the unification of all religions of the world into one. In fact, the only religion in the world that isn't tolerated is Christianity. And I explained to you the reason why. It's because we are different. But there is coming a day when everyone, 
Everyone will eventually worship the Antichrist, the beast. The Buddhist will, the Muslims will, the Hindus will, the Mormons will, the Jehovah's Witnesses will, and those who think they're Christians, they will. They will either worship him or they will be beheaded in front of the whole world on national TV. Well, Pastor Doug, I don't really believe that. You know, they don't behead people anymore. That went out with the dark ages. Let me tell you something. The Antichrist is not going to be politically correct. He's not running for re-election. He don't have to worry about people voting. You know why? Because all the leaders of the world gave him their power. He is like God. He is like a king over the world. He, he don't care about public opinion. He don't care what you think, what anybody else thinks. He don't even care what God thinks. And he is going for shock value. And really when you think about it, it's not that far stretched because ISIS is beheading Christians now in the Middle East right now. Right now. They're beheading Christians. ISIS is. And if you're thinking about waiting to the tribulation period to get saved... Listen to me. If you refuse to get saved now when it's easy, you won't do it then. Because the peer pressure then will be turned up to a thousand. Instead of walking down an aisle and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins at an altar, in a church somewhere, or in your car, or wherever you're listening to me, they will grab you by the nap of the neck. They will slam your head down the chopping block, give you one last chance to take the mark or die. That's how you get saved in the tribulation period. I promise you, those who don't want to get saved now when it's easy, they won't do it then. It'll be very hard to convince them then. Well, I don't believe it'll happen like that. Well, look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. There it is right there. It's going to happen, friends. That's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus is coming soon. We need to be ready, and we need to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. Amen? Look now, verse 14 of Revelation 17. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Hallelujah. Guess who the called are? Woo! You're looking at them right here. Look around you. That's us. Hallelujah. The saints, those who are saved. Notice it's the religious people. The apostate church will wage war against Jesus and his saints at the battle of Armageddon, and Jesus will win the battle. Look at verse 15. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sits, are peopled, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which thou saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth." 
The political power headed by Antichrist will overthrow the false church organization, which is represented by the woman here in this vision. She represents the false religion of the world. And so the political power headed by the Antichrist are going to, is going to overthrow this church, false church organization. And they're going to overthrow this woman. And this chapter ends with the beast and the ten kings turning against Babylon. They're going to hate her. They're going to strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. This is how God feels about false religion. He's going to leave them laying naked. And notice again, verse 17, that God is going to, God's in control. He puts in their heart to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom to the beast until all the words of God shall be fulfilled. My friend, the Antichrist is going to think he's in power, but he's just playing according to God's plan. Hallelujah. God is the one who has the ultimate power, always has, always will. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. It is good to know that the hearts of earthly rulers are in God's hands. That means that God can change men's minds and turn their hearts just as the husbandman turns the water by canals and gutters through his land as he pleases. It doesn't alter the nature of the water any more than God's providence alters the freedom of man's will, but directs the course of it to serve his own purpose. And that's what God does in the tribulation period. So when we pray, we've been praying, we've been fasting, we've been seeking God for our lost loved ones to be saved. We've been praying for our government leaders to turn back to God. Friends, we need to keep praying for that. The way things are happening in the world right now, especially in the Middle East, we may not see another presidential election. We may not even be here when the election comes back around. My friends, when the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit will be gone and people will believe the lies of the Antichrist. One more scripture I'll share with you and I'm going to close with this. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, listen to this. Even he whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is that saying? Paul is telling us that when the Antichrist comes, he is going to have signs and wonders and power and lying wonders, and he's going to work miracles. They're going to be false miracles, but he's going to do it, and there are going to be people that flock after him, and these will be the people who had heard the truth but rejected it. And they are going to flock after him and they're going to believe his lies. And God is going to send them strong delusion that they will believe the lie. Why? Because when they had the choice to choose the truth, they didn't do it. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected the truth. And so they will be damned who did not believe the truth, but they had pleasure in their unrighteousness. My friends, here's what we need to pray for our lost loved ones. We need to pray, God, please, let them choose your truth over the lies of the devil. God, open their eyes and let them see the truth. Open their ears so they can hear the truth of your word. 
before it's too late. Because those who reject the truth, those who reject it, there's coming a time when they're going to reject it one, one too many times. And God's going to say, okay, I'm bringing my church home. And you're going to stay and you're going to believe the lie because that's what you wanted to do. My friends, tell your family, all I want this new year is for all of you to follow Christ and go to heaven with me. That's what I want. It's what I want this new year. And don't let your loved ones be left behind. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, please, don't let them reject the truth. And at the same time, pray, God, help me to speak the truth in love so they will hear the truth and be converted. This has been Strong Meat for Strong Believers. If this broadcast was a blessing to you, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at revivalfire29 at yahoo.com or call me at 964-5333 and visit Raven Assembly of God's website at ravenag.org and find out more information about our church. This is Pastor Doug Johnson reminding you to keep your head up. God is on your side. And join me next time for more Strong Meat for Strong Believers.